Again, Leviticus 17, verse 1, the Lord again speaking to Moses, saying to him, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as a peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall then sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So here again in chapter 17, once again, we find God beginning to give more instruction uh, through Moses and then, of course, to Aaron as the high priest and the priesthood again officiating, as we've seen in the book of Leviticus, the prescribed order or the way whereby God might be worshipped. On his terms, again, the book of Leviticus thematically is about the holiness of God. And as a result of that, our responsibility as followers of the Lord to be holy, to be set apart. We'll see in the uh, verses ahead that we are to be unlike the rest of the world. We are to live differently. We live by a different standard and by a different calling. And all throughout this book, whether it's been the different uh, sacrifices that God has given protocol regarding, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the you know the, the, the offerings uh, of the Day of Atonement, which we just saw last week in chapter 16, that high holy day, Yom Kippur, where once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the nation as he applied the blood there uh, to the mercy seat of uh, upon the ark there in the Holy of Holies, uh, God giving directives. And here as we come into chapter 17, once again, we see God basically here giving a law now to be observed when they would sacrifice animals to utilize them for food. Specifically, you can sense that's what God's referring to here as he talks about whenever a man of the house of Israel, verse 3, again, kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp. So when an animal was put to death inside or outside the camp, Notice, the, God says, if they don't bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it as an offering before the Lord, then they would bear guilt for that bloodshed uh, as if in some sense they had taken the animal's life from God's perspective in vain. And here God very severely, you notice, he's pretty serious about this, verse 4, he said they shall be cut off, he says, two times from among the people. Now, you know, question is there, is God speaking of being cut off in the sense of losing one's life or cut off from fellowship? Uh, I'm not exactly 100% certain what that could refer to. There are times it does seem to imply cut off in the sense of losing one's life. There are other times that term is used to refer to cut off the ideas from the fellowship uh, of the people of God. 
But what we have God here doing in verses 1 through uh, 7 here is basically giving a law to be observed when they would sacrifice animals for food. God here now sets in order the responsibility that that sacrifice was to be brought to the tabernacle to be offered to him as a peace offering. It's sort of a regulation now being established by God to set up some healthy boundaries for his people. This is what we have going on. Now, Now keep in mind. Prior to this time, uh, when they would sacrifice animals and offerings, Abraham would build an altar and he'd make a sacrifice to the Lord in the open field. Uh, you know, there were times when Noah built an altar and made a sacrifice to the Lord. So prior to this time, uh, God had not established this, but now God is beginning to establish certain boundaries, a certain protocol for his people. And I think certainly there are a few reasons we have God doing this at this point, that whenever an animal was offered, even if it was offered for food, which they were to partake of it in this case as a meal God said that before they did that they were to bring it also as a peace offering remember that was the fellowship offering where you would eat a portion the priest would receive a portion and then another portion would be burned to the Lord and the idea was I'm having a a fellowship meal with God I'm communing with God over this meal and I think there's a few reasons God establishes this regulation even when they were partaking of a meal When they sacrifice an animal, a few of them being this. First of all, is God, I think, wanted to keep his people from secretly offering sacrifices to idols out in the fields. In the sense that, again, keep in mind, God's going to refer in a few verses how they came from Egypt where there was all types of pagan idolatry going on. They're going to Canaan, which is another place that is filled with idols and all types of pagan idolatry and worship. So God here is seeking to safeguard his people with some boundaries so that no one would be able to secretly offer sacrifices to idols out in the field. God says, no, whenever an animal is put to death, even to be eaten for food, it must be brought as a peace offering to the tabernacle and shared there. In the sense that if someone were to offer an animal out in the middle of the open field and someone were to confront them, hey, are you, what are you doing? I mean, are you starting to turn away from God? Are you worshiping an idol? Hey, we're just having a barbecue, man. We're we're not doing anything wrong. We're just having a simple barbecue out here. Well, because of this regulation, they could say, no, no, no. Because God said that whenever you sacrifice an animal that is to be brought to the tabernacle of meeting and there eaten and partaken of, and in a sense, it was an indirect safeguard from someone beginning to be seduced into other things or beginning to secretly isolate themselves from the people of God and to go up to the high places or other locations where they would sacrifice animals. And I think as well, God was giving them here a reverence for the sanctity of life and even causing their ordinary meals to be appreciated as a sacred experience. Uh, that even the partaking of their food when they would sacrifice an ox or you know a goat or, or meat that were clean animals that they could partake of, they were to bring it, it says, verse 5, uh, to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and offer it as a peace offering to the Lord. And again, God was taking what was really an ordinary experience, partaking of meat and food, when they would sacrifice to eat meat, which was, a, in a sense, a, a delicacy understanding that culture. It wasn't as quite as common as we would today because animals were extremely valuable. So when they would partake of meat, God said that he wanted this to be honored in a way whereby there was a safeguard, they were reverencing that a life had been, you know, in a sense, lost in order for them to be nourished, and it also was taking that ordinary meal and making it a sacred experience as they would share it 
there uh, at the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 7, notice he says, and, he, and this gives you the idea of this is why he's referring to this, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons whom they have played the harlot. The idea is spiritual Adultery, again, you know, lack of devotion whereby the heart, you know, ha- having a relationship that's inappropriate and God uses this spiritual analogy many times regarding our relationship with him. They shall no more, God says, offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the heart. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. So again, you see from verse 7, God saying what they have been doing, God says they shall do no more. What God is doing here in verse 7 is saying exclusively, I want your total devotion. I want your complete and total devotion. They came from a land where it was okay to be polytheistic. They came from a place where it was okay to worship many gods and to have a divided allegiance. And here God is saying, I don't want divided loyalties. And God says, you shall no more sacrifice to other things and play the harlot with other things. God says, I want 100% devotion in your worship. I want exclusive rights to your devotion and your allegiance. And again, when we go to the New Testament, when we look at the, the statements of Jesus, Jesus is rather exclusive as well. You know, whereby he tells us even things at times, which almost seems shocking to read on the page where he says, you know, if any man would follow me and he doesn't hate his mother or father or brother or sister or, you know, wife and, and, and children, and, and you're, then he's not worthy of being my disciple. And we read that and go, what? I mean, well, would Jesus want us to actually hate our family? I mean, I mean, there's a pretty strong terms when he's stating that, talking about absolute allegiance, that he would say, if we don't hate our family members, and we're not worthy to, to be his disciples, well, Jesus certainly isn't contradicting what the Word of God tells us to love others. What he's simply doing is saying, your love and devotion and allegiance to me should be so strong that in comparison to your devotion and commitment to your even your closest kinship and family it should look like hatred that that love you have for them should look like hatred in comparison to the absolute exclusive dedication and devotion that you have for me again the bible says he's a jealous god he's worthy of our devotion and i even think in verse 7 there's an indication as well that god is encouraging the people to in no way ever absorb worldly practices into their worship life. They weren't to combine these things. Well, yeah, we'll worship Jehovah God, but we also want to incorporate some of these other things that were a part of our worship to the you know, goat gods and to the demons and different things that the pagans worship and to kind of intermingle them things and incorporate them. And God says, no, it's by my standards. I don't want you taking worldly, secular standards and incorporating them into the worship of God. Verse 80 says, And you shall also say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, notice again, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So very clearly here in verse 8, this is now a time historically where God establishes a prescribed and an appointed place of worship. The tabernacle of meeting, ultimately then it will become the temple itself. But here God, unlike a time prior to this historically when they could worship in the open fields, Abraham did, Isaac did, Jacob did, you know, Noah did. At this point God says, "No, now there is a prescribed place." 
Now there's an appointed place, and he wanted everyone gathering at the same place, and he establishes a prescribed way of worship given by him, and he asked them to come to this designated gathering place. So much that he feels strongly about that, that he says, anyone who offers a burnt offering and does not come, notice, and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting, again, they were to be cut off from among the people. Again, a, a rather severe discipline of God. God did not want people to begin to feel the freedom to just worship on their own terms. That is an absolute prescription for idolatry and for spiritual catastrophe where people begin to prescribe their own terms for how they're going to worship God. God is not complicated, but he did give a few prescribed boundaries and appointed things, one of which was when you come to worship, you are to come to the tabernacle of meeting and they were to honor and respect that. And again, you can see how that would indeed be a difficult thing for some people because let's just be honest, among humanity, people crave for convenience in everything. And it's no different in spiritual life, is it not? People love convenient worship. We all worship God, but I mean, it's got to be convenient. I mean, it needs to accommodate my terms. It needs to accommodate my preferences. And, and so, of course, we have people who theologically want to develop their own God. You know, uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey, I remember years ago one time when somebody uh, said something from a Christian perspective, she said, well, my Christian God would never, and I think, well, there's the problem right there. Your Christian God? What, your Christian God? You're creating your own God just because you're Oprah Winfrey and you have your own television show? I mean, but, but it just contributes to the understanding that this is how we are as human beings. We want things on our terms, and a lot of times what it boils down to of wanting on our terms is our own self-worship and the fact that we want convenience. Well, I don't like the idea. What do you mean go to the tabernacle meeting? I don't want to go to the tabernacle meeting. I want to do my little thing right over here. I, I don't want to have to go to the tabernacle of meeting. And, and, and again, it, it totally grates against this reality of how we want convenient worship. We're willing to worship God if it doesn't involve personal sacrifice. If it does, I mean, look, I worship God, but I mean, come on, when you start bringing out that, that commitment word, commitment? I mean, come on. I mean, isn't that a little bit radical there? And, and so many times it is tragic when we evaluate our personal lives with the Lord how at times we hold back from engaging maybe on the level we should for one very simple reason, whether it's our personal devotional life or worshiping God publicly or serving the Lord in some capacity because it's just not convenient. Uh, and we're not willing to be inconvenienced for the Lord. You know, I'm sure glad that he was willing to be inconvenienced for me. <laughs> I'm really glad that he was willing to make a few sacrifices and be so committed in the ways that he was for me. And, and here God is kind of just, you know, in a counter way, going against that, calling the people to go to a designated spot, the tabernacle of meeting. Ultimately, again, it would later be the temple. And I think there's just a reminder here as, as God says, look, when you come, come to this place. And I think it's just a good reminder for us that it is never a good thing, honestly, for any of us to avoid the gathering place of God's people. God just says it's not good. It's, it's going to lead to you, he says here, to them literally being cut off from his people. And I can tell you this, whenever, whenever, 
And I say this with a firm sense of absolute confidence and evaluation in, I think, a fair enough amount of years so far in pastoral ministry, whenever anyone begins to avoid the gathering place of God's people with consistently and consistency and regularity, it never works long term. They never do good long term. I have never seen someone... You know, with the mindset, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm not too crazy about the church. You know, I mean, I love, I love Jesus, but I just, it's the church. I just can't stand the church. Or it's, I like Jesus, but I don't like Christians. Well, you know, my answer to that is, is that would kind of be like, again, because the Bible tells me that Jesus is the head of the church and we're the body of Christ, that we're one. And I just wonder how well it would work if I said to my wife, your head, your face, ooh, your body, ooh, I, don't, I don't know about your body. Your head, I'm loving your head. Your head's smoking. I'm, oh, I'm, I can look at your head all day long, and I want to have interaction with your head, your eyes, kiss your lips. I love your head. The rest of your body, whoa, I could do without that. I don't think that'd be a very healthy relationship. But I want you to think about when people say, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love the Lord. It's just Christians in the body of Christ. I don't, I just don't want anything to do with them. Well, listen, that, that, really, that's, that's counter-biblical because the two are inseparable. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. We're the members of the body and individually members of one another. And because of that, yes, God has called us to gather together. God has called us to assemble together with consistency. And again, it's not so much, please don't misunderstand me about the location. Oh, you're just saying I've got to come to the church. No, listen, truly from a New Testament perspective, the church is not you know, Calvary Chapel Gateway or First Baptist or whatever up the street building. The church is Christians. We are the church. We are the living stones. It's the people of God to be assembled together corporately the way that God intends for us to be. And that is so important for us and healthy. And whenever that's refrained from or drawn back from, I tell you, in time, people never do well. It never works. They never do good. It always ends up in problematic lifestyles and just further digression in the things of God in their life. So here, they're, they're, again, God's giving them some prescribed terms of worship here, some boundaries, some things that they were to observe. Again, it was not complicated, but it was something that God established of how they were to worship and where they were to worship, and they were to submit to those things. And I think the lesson for us as we move away from this is very simply this, is that honestly, we all, as worshipers of God, I think we all need in some capacity a little bit of God's authority in our lives, even in relation to worship, to kind of help regulate our lives to some extent. Submitting to some measure of spiritual authority in our lives, of standards and protocol that God establishes for us, is a good thing. It's a safe thing. It keeps us from wandering off and secretly starting to worship idolatrous things in our private life out in the open fields that nobody else can catch us doing by having a little bit of established authority in our life that we submit ourselves to with regularity. It keeps us from getting engaged in things that we shouldn't be engaged in. And, and listen, I'll be the first to speak to myself. Too much freedom in my life is not a good thing. You give me too much freedom, I guarantee you that I will get in trouble. <laughs> So to have a measure of authority over my life and in my life and something that I'm submitted to, I don't call that legalistic. I call that helpful. I call that helpful. 
because it's something that's a safeguard and protective in our lives. And here God was no doubt establishing these things, knowing people are sheep. He puts some of these things now into protocol for Israel as they worship. Verse 10 says, And whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person whom eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So here again, God is beginning to speak about the importance of them having respect uh, for blood, the sanctity of life in all of these things, no doubt, building to what he's going to say to us in verse 11 here, where he is making a prohibition against anyone, notice, partaking of blood. And we've seen this multiple times. If you remember throughout our study in the Old Testament, all the way back as far as Genesis chapter 9, where God, when he gave meat to be partaken of to Noah on the other side of the flood, and God said that all flesh was fair game, it was permissible to partake of meat, but he even there back in Genesis 9 said, but they were not to partake or to eat of the blood. They were to drain the animal adequately first. And all the way from there, and we've seen it a few times throughout the Old Testament books we've been studying, God is building this level of respect and reverence for the blood of a creature. And we see the reason why God has been trying to give them the the honor for blood. Look at verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And here's the critical thing. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So again, take notice. It was because it was always God's intention to use blood as the very instrument by which he would provide atonement, forgiveness for sin. So God had been building into their understanding this appreciation of life, the sanctity of life, the value and the honor of how blood represented life. And isn't it interesting, verse 11, how even, you know, Hundreds and hundreds of years before we began to discover things about blood that we know now, that blood, you know, was the life system of everything. That blood represents the life system. It is what gives life. It's the thing that sustains life. I mean, your uh, circular system and, and mine, the blood is what you know carries oxygen to needed places and, and nutrients. It moves things around the body and then it removes things from areas that it shouldn't be and helps with fighting infection and takes toxins away. I mean, the, the blood system is critical for sustaining life. And God knew this from the very beginning. And because of that fact, it was to be honored and respected. It wasn't to be treated casually. And ultimately, God wanted to have a respect for the sanctity of blood because that would be very simply what God chose. And think of this, please. God could have chosen anything as a means for the forgiveness of sin. That's what God chose. God chose that the means of the forgiveness of sin and and error against him would be that there would be the sacrifice of one life to make forgiveness for the failures and the guilt of another life. So because of that, God selected blood to make atonement for the soul. So because of that, God asked them to completely refrain. And of course, all of this was just to prepare and foreshadow them for the ultimate sacrifice of what Jesus would do, Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 says that we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins. So the people of Israel came to a very clear understanding of the respect of life and the value of a life and the reality, again, that this was what was essential 
for there to be atonement and to be forgiveness. God says very clear, which should always remind us, even today when chapter 16, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement is celebrated, there's no mention in that chapter, when you speak to your Jewish friends, please take note, there's no mention in that chapter of atonement being made by good works or by reflection or by contemplation of way... God says very clearly, chapter 17, verse 11, in the Old Testament scriptures, that he gave blood to make atonement for one's soul. It was through the innocent sacrifice of another life being sacrificed for another that guilt was atoned for and blood itself would make atonement for souls. And of course, that is what ultimately prepared us to understand ultimately the great sacrifice and what Jesus has done for each one of us. Verse 13, he says, And whatever man, or excuse me, verse 12, Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. And whatever man of the children of Israel or strangers who dwell among you hunts and catches an animal. So there you go. I guess hunting is biblical. I don't care for it, but thankful for you guys who do. <laughs> Please share some of what you catch. He hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten. He shall notice... He was to pour out the blood and cover it with dust. Again, he was to use adequate protocol. He was to, to bleed the animal adequately and then to cover over it with dignity afterwards if he was hunting to catch that animal for food or game. For notice, verse 14, it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Again, God helping them to understand these principles and how they all apply uh, ultimately to what would be foreshadowed in Christ. And, and we have to remember this. Whenever we see the Bible speak about the blood of Christ, we need to remember it, it's speaking symbolically of representing the life of Christ, that the life of Christ, notice the blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Its blood sustains its life. So when we talk about the blood of Christ, we sing about the blood of Christ, we're celebrating the fact that the life of Christ was poured out for us. The life of Christ was given for us in order to our lives to be sustained and for us to experience forgiveness and spiritual life. So the life of all flesh, it's sustained by the blood. And therefore I said, verse 14, to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off, God declares. Verse 15, and every person who eats what dies naturally or what was torn by beasts. And the idea here is if you're you know, walking along, you, you find some, what we would call today, modern vernacular, roadkill. You, know, you find you know, somebody who you know, maybe shot an animal, didn't find it, and you go, hey, dinner there. You know, God says if you find something there, it's been torn by another animal, it's been attacked by a lion, or someone else killed it and it's still there, and you're thinking, hey, I could feed my family. Or He says, well, whether it's a native of your own country or a stranger, you shall both wash your clothes and bathe in water, and you had to be unclean until evening. Again, you can... You know, eating something that's just laying there that you didn't personally kill, you, you never know what the case is, so God's kind of just protecting the camp here. He says, look, because when you eat something that's lying there dead, uh, you could also contract something that maybe you didn't want to spread around to the rest of the camp. So again, God, very uh, wise with sanitation and hygiene, he says, if you're going to partake of that steak, uh, then he says, you've got, you got to stay away from everybody for the evening. It's the sacrifice you've got to make to bathe, and you'd be ceremonially unclean until uh, the evening. 
Uh, Chapter 18 goes on by saying, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, notice, I am the Lord your God. Now, as we come to chapter 18 and through the rest of the book of Leviticus, now God begins to get really practical. Remember we said when we started the book of Leviticus that the theme verse was that verse where the Bible says that God declared, be holy for I am holy. And again, you have those two ideas that God is holy and therefore because God is holy, we should therefore in response to living for God be holy or set apart ourselves. Uh, you know, we say today, like father, like son, and we understand in that the concept being that there's there's a genetic effect, that sometimes you can look at a child, the son of, of a father, and genetically that son reflects the father, whether it's physical appearance or his disposition or maybe his talents or maybe his weaknesses, whatever, like father, like son. Well, we're children of God, so we should reflect God in the way that we live and we conduct ourselves as we have relationship with him. So God says, be ye holy as I am holy. And in chapters 1 through 17, the first part of the book, it really emphasizes the holiness of God and how God is, is, is separate and therefore he's to be worshipped and served unlike anyone else is served. And now chapters eight, three and 18 and on, God answers the other side of that, how we are to be holy ourselves in response to the way he's how we are to live different we're to live set apart to be unlike others in the world because we are followers of god because they serve jehovah god they were to live differently than the rest of the world around them who did not so chapters 18 and onward get practical and you'll notice in some of these verses if you read ahead extremely practical uh, so uh, this chapter is another one is ones that could be rated m for mature, uh, and then it also could be related, uh, rated uh, letter A for awkward, if you have to teach it. So he says, verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, again, this is the key moving forward, I am the Lord your God, because I'm your God. And because you are subservient to me, God saying, These are the ways that I would have you to therefore live. I am the Lord your God. So according to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe, notice in contrast, my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them for I am the Lord your God and you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments with if a man does he shall live by them again he says I am the Lord so notice God calling them now to a life of living set apart in verse 3 he clearly emphasizes to them again keep in mind they had come from Egypt where they saw many of the things you're going to see referred to in the next verses in full practice all the time. There were standards, there, were, there was sexual perversion, there was idolatry, there were all types of things that God prohibits them now to do as his people that they saw as the everyday standards of Egypt in their prior life. So God says to them, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you once dwelt, God says, you're not to walk that way anymore. 
You're not to live that way anymore. Yes, that may have been what you came out of and what you were exposed to. And again, Egypt always is a type of the world and it's a type of our past life as well, that we were called out of Egypt. God took us out of that. And it's important for us to remember, there may have been certain ways that you lived before you came to God, before you came to Jesus Christ, but you're not supposed to live that way anymore. Those standards are supposed to be different now. You're supposed to look at that and say, those are my standards then, and those are the standards of the world of my past life, but I don't live by those standards anymore. I'm not to measure at what I do and what I don't do by those previous standards, nor does God say, are you to do according to the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you? So again, uh, that was the place where God was bringing them, but it was a pagan idolatrous land. Very simply, what God is emphasizing in verse 3 is that they were not to embrace the world's standards. They were not to embrace the standards of the ungodly. They weren't to take their cues from the unsaved people that they were living all around them. And I think that is so important because we have to remember as God's people, we are not to take our cues from the world. We're not to, to establish our standards of what are right and wrong by the standards of morality of what people all around us are doing in Egypt and Canaan and in the world all around us. That is a really, really dangerous way to establish our boundaries and our convictions and what's right and what's wrong in our standards. Uh, that can lead to an incredible amount of just personal defilement and confusion and disobedience because those standards are completely different. They're completely different standards. Uh, and because of that, God calls them, as he calls us, to not embrace the world's standards. Instead, verse 4 and 5, he tells them to clearly, what? Adhere to his standards. You just see the emphasis, the reading itself, is the commentary. He says, you shall observe my judgments. Again, what kind of judgment do people use in Egypt? Well, here's how they judge that kind of situation. God says, no, you don't judge things the same way the world judges things. You don't judge people the same way the world judges people. As Christians, we're not to have the same temperament and disposition and make judgments about people or judgments about situations the way the world makes judgments about people. That's not our standard. We're not to look to the world to learn those things. God says, no, you make spiritual judgments, which means you pray about things. You don't just say, well, this is what I see. So that No, God says you pray about that. And you give me time to reveal whether you're right or you're wrong. You, you use my judgments and my standards, he says, in making your decisions. He says, and you shall keep my ordinances and walk in my ways. Again, not the ways of the world, but to walk in the ways of God. They are vastly different, and that's by design. That's purposeful, because God has a different plan and intention for our life, and we're to be a light to a dark world. And he says, you shall therefore, verse 5, keep my statutes and, and my judgments, which notice, if a man does, he shall live by them. So God says, look, if you live according to my statutes and my judgments, God said, it will be, it will be an experience that is life-giving. Again, if you live according to the ways of the world, is it not? I lived there once and we watched, that's a self-destructive life. To live according to the statutes and standards of the world is a life and a pattern of life that is self-destructive because sin destroys. Sin and self-indulgence is a life really that just leads to problematic situations and it is self-destructive. But God says, if you live my way by my law, he says it will be life-giving to you. It actually will give life and a healthy life, a good life that in many ways is problem-free. And that's important because 
So many times our mind wants to deceive us that we think that if we live according to the ways of God, that somehow we're going to have this miserable, rotten life, we're going to miss all these things, and we're going to miss the good life, right? I think if there is one lie the devil has sowed in the minds, especially of our young people nowadays, think if I live according to the ways of God and refrain from this or do that when others don't do that, then man, it's like, you know, God's just going to make me have a rotten, horrible, ruined... And listen, that is the furthest thing from the truth. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It's the exact opposite. God's not looking to ruin people's lives. That's not his nature. And here God says, look, if you observe my ways... It will add life to you. It'll give you the real life that you're intended to have rather than the self-destructing life of many of those who live according to the ways of Canaan and Egypt and the world around them. And here now he gets very practical. Specifically notice he deals with the issues of sexual perversion. And this was a very big problem in Egypt. Understand, these are not arbitrary things God's referring to in these verses. These are things that were practices in Canaan and practices in Egypt, and that's why God's addressing them. And he's saying, don't live like them, and he now sets examples of how they were to honor the gift of sex and sexuality, and they were to experience it the one way God intended, one man, one woman in a marital relationship, and within those strict boundaries, it was the healthy way, the fulfilling way, the satisfying way, Anything outside of that, notice God makes very clear, is not part of his plan and purpose and was to be refrained from. Verse 6, he says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin. The idea is he's speaking of family here. That there was not to be in any way sexual experience in incestuous ways among close relatives. To uncover his nakedness, which is just a Hebrew euphemism, which basically meant to, you know, to, to undress oneself for a sexual experience. You'll see this phrase repeated. Uh, it's just a Hebrew euphemism to speak of uncovering oneself physically to be able to have sexual experience with another. So you are not to approach anyone near of kin, family, to uncover his nakedness, for I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. So again, no sexual relations with your parents. And again, these were common things that would take place in Egypt where people would literally marry a parent and, and have sexual intercourse with a parent. These are things that God's addressing. She is your mother, God says, as if that wouldn't be enough to stop you right there. God says, you shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife. The idea is if you had a stepmother, you were not to be incestuously involved with her. Verse 9, the nakedness of your sister, so your siblings. There was to be no sexual intercourse, mingling of the gene pool of siblings, having sexual relations, or the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter, or your daughter's daughter. So here, pedophilia, the idea of, of actual sexual expression with your grandchild, the Bible is referring to. You shall not uncover, for theirs is their own nakedness, God says. The nakedness of your father's, wi father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father. She is your sister, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, that is your aunt. She is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. 
You shall not uncover, verse 14, the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt, God says. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin. God simply says, verse 17, very clearly, it is wickedness. So here God makes a very, very thorough and clear prohibition against intermarriage and incestuous sexual experiences among family and among relatives. Again, knowing the pollution and the problematic things that happen, number one, in the gene pool when stuff like that happens because the gene pool is now polluted from the Garden of Eden moving forward. It just digressed. Here God very clearly prohibits what were honestly practices that were happening among the culture. And God just clearly says, look, it's wickedness. It's perverse. It's gross. It's wrong. Again, and, and, and you look at that and you think, man, it, you read something like that. And if you're anything like me, you go, was it really necessary to have to state all that? I mean... Couldn't you just like one time say, don't have sexual experiences with anyone in your family? What must God know about the perversity of humanity that he felt it that necessary? And again, God does not waste words. As a teacher, sometimes I do. I admit, and you say, I know you do. That's why it's a little long sometimes. God never wastes words. This book is inspired. Can you imagine how many things God could have said in the Bible that maybe he didn't said that you wish he had said? So every word, every sentence, every phrase is precious and important, valuable in the word of God. And God knowing the sickness, the distortion, the capability of perversion in the human heart felt it needful to be that extensive. To say refrain, refrain, and when we try and just, well, and God, no, I covered that too. Not that either. And God here, knowing the lusts of humanity and our perversion, very clearly says, look, covered all the bases, it's wickedness. Verse 18, nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other's alive. Verse 19, we saw this in prior chapters, not to approach a woman to uncover her as long as she's in her customary impurity or the idea is in her menstruation time. Again, being you know respectful in that sense. Verse 20, moreover, notice, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. So there, very clearly, God puts a strong prohibition against adultery. God says, you know, look, if that's someone else's wife, adultery was off grounds. Again, it's, it's oh, we're, we're making love. No, you're making a mess. You're making a mess. God clearly prohibits. You know, none of this, well, my needs were neglected. God says, no, that's someone else's wife. And God says, if you lie carnally with someone else's wife, then God says, you have defiled yourself. Very clear. Verse 21, and you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. So again, God's dealing with issues of sexual perversion, sexual perversion intermingling sexual experiences among family members, 
adultery, addressing these kind of things, sexual experiences outside the boundaries that he's intended of a husband and a wife. And it's because of that God has to deal with the issue now of what? Of sacrificing unwanted children that come from unwanted pregnancies of sexual experiences outside the boundaries of God's design in the marriage relationship. And he says, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. Molech was one of the gods of the Ammonites, and he was the god of pleasure. And what they would actually do, if you studied anything about this in Canaanite practices, you can do research on it. Molech was basically a, considered a god of pleasure. And what they would do was a little statue and they would heat up this little bronze statue with extended arms to where it was molten, red hot in the fire. And then they would literally take their child or infant and they would place the child on the scalding red hot arms of the statue and literally watch their child scream and sizzle to death before their very eyes as a form of child sacrifice and as a form of heightened arousal, believing that if they made that sacrifice, that Molech would give more blessing and pleasure and prosperity into their lives. Now, we look at that and we're shocked and astonished by that, but the truth of the matter is, in our culture, we may do things in a little more of a what we consider a sanitary way, but we dispose of children much the same. We may do it in a different form and practice, but sacrificing a child, sacrificing a life, God says very clearly, it's wrong. It's murder. Very simple. And isn't it very interesting to look from an Old Testament perspective that the sacrifice of the life of a child was connected to the worship of pleasure? And boy, isn't it much the same thing when we unfortunately you know, indulge in sacrificing a child's life through the acts of abortion in our culture, is it not really the worship of the same thing? It's the worship of pleasure. This child is going to hinder my ability to enjoy my life. This child is going to be an inconvenience. It's going to get in my way. It's an unwanted pregnancy because I was having sex outside of the boundaries of a committed marriage relationship, which God intended for children to be brought into in a way that was healthy and safe for them to be, you know, in a sense, embraced and reared in. So you have sex outside of marriage, which contributes to unwanted pregnancies because the only reason I was having the sex was just for pleasure, that alone, and now I have this unwanted pregnancy, so in order to continue to satisfy my own pleasures, I need to rid myself and sacrifice this child. And it's very interesting to me to see the connection of how really the same altar is worshipped to this day, and it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. It seems barbaric, but we become guilty today of much the same thing, of much the same thing. Now listen, if you have been involved in such things, please understand, no condemnation. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and thank goodness for the shed blood of Christ. God loves us all and forgives any sin. But yet he was very clear. And, and we can't say, well, you know, no, God's very clear in his word. He's very clear in regards to these things and we can't ignore them. Verse 22, he says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So there the Bible speaks very clearly about homosexuality. Uh, says very evident to us, not real hard to read, it is an abomination, which is a word that means something is disgusting. It's looked down upon as despised, as loathsome. It's a very strong word. God, again, is very clear, and we'll see more of this as we move into other chapters. God, again, prohibiting now homosexuality. 
that it was something God says it's an abomination when two people of the same sex have sexual expression. Verse 23, nor shall you mate with an animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. God says it is a perversion. So God addresses homosexuality. He says it's an abomination. Now he addresses, verse 23, bestiality. Actually having sexual experiences with animals themselves. And again, you know, these were practices that exist in that day. And I don't mean to be crass, but I tell you the same thing still goes on in our modern civilization. And in the same way there are people pleading for their rights to express themselves in homosexual experiences, there are people who would like to have their rights as well to have freedom to indulge their sexual experiences with animals as well. And you see, it just becomes a moral landslide. And here God is addressing things that just defile a nation and defile a people group. And notice, he says in the last verses, look, this is what God's getting to. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things For by all these things, I have it underlined here in my Bible, for by all these things, which we just read, the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out, again, when do you vomit? When something's disgusting. He says, the land vomits out its inhabitants because of these practices. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, And not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or a stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations, the men of the land have done who are before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land, verse 28, vomit you out also. God says, no partiality. If my people begin to digress, he says, they'll be responsible for the same guilt. When you defile it, as it had vomited out the nations that were before you, for whoever... Very clear, whoever commits any of these abominations, these sexual perversions, the sacrifice of children, God says, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep, God says, my ordinance. Why, God says? Why is it so important to keep God's ordinance, God's word, no matter what the culture is doing, no matter what Egypt's saying? No matter what Canaan is participating in and saying, hey, this is just the new standard. God says, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you. And you do not defile yourselves by them. For again, God comes back to, I am the Lord, your God. Again, verse 24 through 30, God says, look, all these things. Sexual perversion in every form, incestuous relationship, pedophilia, vile things like you know committing adultery and disrespecting other people's marriages and, and homosexuality and bestiality. Again, God's not hyper-focusing on one sexual sin. He's just addressing sexual perversion when something that's given as a gift for a husband and a wife committed in a marriage relationship and is distorted and perverted and abused outside of that for just selfish pleasure alone, God says it defiles a land because then it leads to unwanted pregnancies where then life is not honored and those two things all begin to tie together. You see how these same practices which our land is becoming extremely guilty of in the exact same way. 
And God says it defiles a land and he calls us as his people, as he calls Israel as his people in that day, to abstain from those things and to hold the line on those things so that we don't, in a sense, enter into the same. And his exhortation, verse 30, is two things. He says, keep my word, number one. And he says, remember that I am the Lord your God. Why do you say, remember, I am the Lord your God? I think God is saying, listen, because you know what the problem is that contributes and leads to all this? It's self-worship. It's self-worship. It's people who worship their own pleasure and satisfaction and ideas and desires rather than submitting to what is right before God. So God says, you stay submitted to me. And he says, and from that place is a reference point with my word as your light, you'll be kept from these very things.